I just finished my nude swim this morning and was just about <laughs> to start my morning yarndling, so... Oh, excellent. excellent. Good, good. Brilliant. What are your chores like in this weather? They're good. Uh, I'm in California, so the weather is oh, yeah, pretty... Right. Um, they hold up really well with a good oiling every so often. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you not quite as usual, but nevertheless coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome back once again to our ongoing movie roundtable series here at TMR, in which we are continuing to discuss films that have some relevance to the themes explored on the show over the last several years, uh, such as So Far. I'll go through the list again because it's not that long, not really that long yet. We have discussed The Brotherhood of the Bell, Batman the Movie, Twelve Monkeys, The Illustrated Man, Silent Running, and last time, The Insider. This time, number seven in the series, we're going to be talking about the film The Shout. 1978, starring Alan Bates, Susanna York, and John Hurt, directed by Jerzy, S- uh, can I say this word, Skolimowski, um, often referred to as a horror movie, but I don't know whether I'm too happy with that characterization, uh, just because that sort of implies to me lots of blood and gore and, I don't know, a plot designed just to freak people out, but uh, not so with this film. The Shout does, of course, involve occult powers or claimed occult powers, and that kind of thing. It's pretty creepy throughout, but it's a lot more than just that. It's a really atmospheric and I think even philosophical stroke theological film in some ways in a vague sort of way, prompting some interesting questions which no doubt we're going to discuss today so uh, I'm not sure quite how to characterise it, Uh, maybe um, weird (laughs) I don't know if there's a genre called weird maybe there is, anyway it's uh, based on a short story by the poet and novelist Robert Graves whose dates are 1895 to 1985, so extremely easy to remember that, 1895 to 1985, and it tells the tale of a very strange man indeed who has, um, or who at least claims to have, supernatural powers, most particularly in the form of a massive shout that is so powerful that it can kill people, or at least make them very unwell, uh, a skill that he says he's learned whilst living in Australia among Aboriginal witch doctors. So uh, a very weird one for today, lots to discuss, for which we are joined, and welcome back, are two almost resident and perspicacious movie critics, Frank Johnson and Mark Campbell. Good to be chatting with you again, chaps. Thanks very much for coming back on the roundtable. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Julian. It's great to be speaking with you both again. It's great that you uh, come on to form the kind of, what would I call it, the core of this round table. Frank, can I start with you? How are things over there in uh, Joe Biden land? Well... Or is it Kamala Harris land? I don't know. You (laughs) know, it's really unclear. Supposedly it's Biden land, but you hear a lot of, like, conspiracies, or I won't even say conspiracies, but a lot of uh, strange stories all over the place, and it's kind of hard to figure out what is actually true and what's wishful thinking and what's disinformation. So Mm. definitely a very interesting time here in the States. Yeah. I must admit, picking up things in the media and people sending me things, I have to find it extremely difficult to interpret what exactly has been going on over there, whether it was all fraud or whether it wasn't. And I mean, my inclination is to think that, yeah, it probably was, but it's not, I don't speak, you know, from the point of view of having the evidence in front of me, you know, because uh, I haven't looked into it to that extent. But actually, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Actually, if you, if you really want to look at it, Michael J. Lindell on his website, he actually has like a two hour documentary he put out just the other I don't know if I sent it to you. Maybe I did. But like he goes through all of the surface level evidence and even has like IP addresses of computers in China that were tapping into an IP address for a voting machine or computer in like, I think, Michigan or whatever. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg, I would think. So, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take a look. Thank you. Thanks for that, that link. I don't remember that. Do, do send me the link because I don't actually remember that. Yeah, I'll send you the link. Yeah. Mark, have you actually moved house now? No, no, that's been a real up and down ride, actually. Um, First buyer pulled out after something like two months, just decided, didn't want it. So we put it back on the market. We then sold it again. And somebody said, oh, yes, yes, I'll buy that. I just want to come around and look at it for a second time came around to ask us a question about when we wanted to move out and then we didn't hear from them again. Hmm. And uh, we have a third buyer who says they'll buy it. But the trouble is there's no, they don't get fined or anything. They say, yes, I'll buy it. And then we go through all the palaver of finding somewhere else and getting surveys. And then if they pull out, they don't get fined or anything. It's a terrible system. And apparently it's different in America. You've got a completion date you have to work towards. You get fined if you pull out, etc. It's a much better system. 
it's a real pain. So we have a third buyer. We are hopeful to move yeah. uh, in the next couple of months, I think it's fair to say. Yes, it's yeah. very odd. I, I have memories of, as a child moving house, you know, with my parents and uh, mm. sort of left on my own one day and somebody came to look at the house and he was a, just happened to be a German chap and uh, he came in and walked all around the garden. He's like, yeah, this is exactly what I want. I've been looking for it. Never heard of him again. You know, no, <laughs> it's very, no. very, very no. hot. <laughs> no. Oh, dear. Um, okay, well, let's uh, move then on to uh, brief impressions of this film for back from 1978 The Shout which I think probably 99% of people listening probably haven't heard of but uh, I'm going to say no I, I do recommend it it's very very strange but very interesting film indeed um, anyway Frank uh, w- what are your impressions of this because I guess I think you haven't seen it before I know that Mark and I both saw it as teenagers but uh, Frank it's new to you isn't it yeah it was totally new I'd never heard of it before um, if I were to classify this movie I would maybe call it a thriller or a suspense more than horror mm. but i thought it was well directed um the visuals like visually it was very interesting it was very good quality and yeah it was kind of slow paced but um it didn't really like suffer for it mm. I, um it kind of reminded me not quite like um the wicker man but kind of that sort of mm. slow paced kind of menace building kind of thing you know it's the same era as The Wicker Man. Yeah. I don't actually know the, the date of The Wicker Man, but it must be, is it 70s or late 60s? I'm not sure. No, it's 70s, I'm sure. Early, early 70s, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to watch it a second time, but um, I did enjoy it. I was kind of surprised to see a very young uh, Tim Curry in there as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Actually, is this the first British film that we've done? I think maybe. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, good. Mark, I think so. your impressions. Hello. Go on, give us your impressions. Uh, give us my impressions. This is probably the fourth time I've seen it, after Julian recommended it to me years ago. Hmm. And every time I watch it, I sort of think, I'm, now I'm going to try and understand it this time. <laughs> and the clues are there, and I never do. <laughs> <laughs> the clues are certainly there, aren't they? That is very strange. There's a lot in there. You think, oh, you must be able to work this out. Yeah, 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 yeah I know. Mm. Um no, I really enjoy it. I think it's uh, puzzling, but in a very good way. It's all about characters. The three central characters, the couple and Alan Bates, are fascinating. Um, mm. I love the sense of location. The at- there's, an, there's an atmosphere to it that mm. is hard to put into words. Mm. I love that. And it reminded me, yeah, actually, like you, it reminded me a bit of The Wicker Man when I was watching it this morning. And also Straw Dogs in a funny sort of way. Have you seen Straw Dogs, either of you? I haven't. No, no. Because you've got the sort of the couple moving into a cottage. Although this film doesn't have the sense that the villagers don't like them, but there is a sense that these this couple have moved in. The man is rather ineffective and cuckolded, and that that's very much straw dogs. And there's a sort of again a, a sense of the atmosphere being almost one of the characters, the location. Hmm. It's a sort of this remote British, almost folk horror. And I, I agree, it's not a horror film as such, but there's a sort of hmm. an odd atmosphere conjured up, which is I think very much the British folk horror tradition which is based on the environment the location that you're in so mm. that's kind of what the film you know means to me when i watch it because that farmhouse or whatever they live in is incredibly isolated isn't it and yeah, they yeah, must have yeah tried to find the most isolated place they possibly can yes um so that in itself is a bit creepy mm. um and then mm. for a character like this alan bates character to descend upon that household is even more creepy isn't it because there's, mm. there's nobody else to turn to mm. <laughs> yeah I find myself looking at the screen, you know, even though it's slow paced quite a lot of the time, I find myself grabbed by it and l- just looking at it with a sort of serious stare all the time. Yeah. I, I suppose my mind is trying to make sense of it with all these little clues. And it's an odd experience watching it. Well, you say it's slow moving. It, it is in a way, but mm. it's also punctuated by <laughs> moments of action and odd shots yeah. and odd sequences and things, boom, boom, that never let, that never mm. let you mm. sort of relax. Yeah. yeah. That's what kind of makes it interesting to me is like, Although it's slow paced, there's some shots that are weird and just like very unique way they shot it was is just very like you want to watch it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you just reminded me. Some of the flashbacks or flash forwards are incredibly brief, aren't they? You'll you'll, you'll suddenly see a uh-huh. a cricket ball hit the wicket just like that, and then it's back to a different time zone. That's very odd, but yeah, that all mm. helps to get your imagination going. And yes, yeah. yes, and it makes sense with it. We'll have to explain what's going on yeah, with yeah, that, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it does make sense with it. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's all about sex. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> That's, um, I'm not sure it's all about that, but yeah, it's a big part of it. No, there's a heck of a lot of, uh, of undercurrents yes. of sexuality going That's on. That's true. There yeah, is, think, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And of course, magic, whatever that means, is a big part of it too. Um, yeah. We'll come to that when we explore the themes yeah. and the possible meanings of this. Um, right, shall I run through my plot summary, which I said before we started recording, I said, I'm, sh- I'm sure this is going to be a fairly straightforward plot one, this one, you know, because I have this sense that it's it unfolds quite slowly, so there must be just a few things to say. But when I started to put it down, I've got a whole page here, so oh, I'll, just, I'll just go with it. Um, all right, so my summary for today. The film starts with a... Sorry, are you there? I think I heard something, a squawk. Yeah, sorry, bird just flew down, flew by my window. <laughs> Okay. Ooh, I'm sure that's an omen of some sort. To add to the unsettling atmosphere, you know. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. Sorry. No problem. Hmm, I feel unsettled now. I'm sure it means something. (laughs) (laughs) The film starts with a Citroen's 2CV driving along a Devon country lane in the rain. So there you go. Can't get better than that. I love that opening. Um, After which we see a woman who is unnamed dressed as a care assistant, and she's going in to unveil the dead body of a man who's lying on a tabletop in the dining room of a psychiatric hospital. Then, after a very strange credit sequence involving an Aboriginal-looking man uh, wearing an 18th-century naval tailcoat, staggering among some sand dunes in the wind and eventually pointing a bone at the camera, we are taken to a cricket match. (laughs) It's a very surreal sort of thing. Um, A cricket match uh, that is rendered odd by virtue of its being played by patients of this psychiatric hospital. And we are then introduced to two men in the scoring box for the cricket match. Number one, Charles Crossley, a mysterious and unnerving patient of the asylum played by Alan Bates, who the doctor of the institution describes as brilliant, well-read, well-travelled, but basically out of his mind. And uh, secondly, another man in this box, this cricket scoring box, a man called Robert Graves, who is in fact the author of the short story upon which the film is based. And then this character is played by Tim Curry. So uh, they prepare to keep score. And just to pass time, Crossley, Alan Bates, offers to tell a story, a true story, he says, about a man who loses his wife. So... Then uh, we get another flashback to an earlier time in which a couple are sleeping among some sand dunes. There are the sand dunes again, near their very isolated farm in North Devon. Um, He is called Anthony, played by John Hurt, and he's a composer of avant-garde electronic music and a church organist in his spare time. He has a recording studio at his house. She is Rachel, played by Susanna York, and she is a care assistant or nurse of some sort, or at least she becomes so later on. I'm not not sure what she is at this point in the story. Anyway, uh, they live together in this this seemingly idyllic life in the countryside and enjoy something of the pleasures of local village life. Into their life then steps this disturbing character, Crossley, played by Alan Bates, who is, of course, the man, as in the cricket scoring box, um, and he's tall and well-built and dressed in black and a, a man of very few words. But when he does speak, he speaks in very mysterious tones about souls and deep realities. And uh, Crossley basically worms his way into their household um, and he exploits their typically English social politeness uh, to invite himself to meals and even to stay at their house. And uh, so begins an intrusion into their life that involves sympathetic magic and occult powers so it seems and we're not not quite sure at this point of the film whether it's real or not anyway as crossley steals a buckle from rachel's sandal and gains magical powers over her so that she finds him irresistibly attractive and uh, likewise anthony comes under crossley's influence as he recounts the story about how he gained the occult power of the deadly shout which he learned from these Aborigines living in Australia for 18 years. So uh, Anthony, he's, he's very fearful, but he's intrigued, you see, because he's a composer of sounds. He's interested in sounds. So he asks, can I hear the shout for himself? And uh, Crossley agrees, warns Anthony to block his ears so that he doesn't die from the full impact of this shout. And they go off the next morning to the sand dunes. And uh, Anthony witnesses this awesome shout beyond description that kills every seagull, sheep, shepherd, within hearing distance unless we learn that the shout is real it's a supernatural event or at least it is within the story within charles's recounting of this this story um so to cut a long story short anthony survives thanks to earplugs 
and he's unwell for a while and Crossley goes off and then reappears and takes over the house and takes over Rachel under the power of this buckle that he's got, this sandal buckle and they openly have an affair and push Anthony aside and uh, Anthony realises what's going on somehow the stones in the sand dunes are associated with the souls of real people under this strange magic so he rushes and finds uh, Crossley's stone and crushes it um, hammers it with his shoes and Crossley is undone uh, not before Crossley gets out one more shout, just at the moment when the police arrive to arrest him for murders he committed in Australia, and because of the shout, a policeman dies and he's taken into custody. And then we whip back to the cricket match. And that's the end of the story, isn't it, that he's telling? Well, a, a storm whips up, patients go berserk, they can't cope with anything out of the ordinary, and Crossley is told, go to your room. He refuses, and instead he prepares to do the shout, you see, because he's the man with the shout. And as he starts... Well, the box is hit by lightning, and he's killed. But not before two men die from his final shout. Or do they? Or are they killed by lightning? Uh, we're not quite mm. sure. Um, and the film ends as it started with Rachel. She's now named Rachel, unveiling the three dead men's bodies and finding Crossley and removing the sandal buckle from his neck as he lies on the table. After which the Queen enters and sits at the end of the room having a cup of tea, which is very strange. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's that's it. Do you recognise what I've just said, chaps? <laughs> or am I talking about a completely different film? Now that you've explained it, yes. Yeah, I think so, yeah. There's a lot in there, actually, much more than, as I say, I realised when I, I started putting those notes together. You could sort of unpick almost every sentence you said and talk about it. So, um, mm. yeah, there's a lot going on, as <laughs> it were, in, the, in it. Yeah, Absolutely. OK, well, we'll come back to the convoluted, as it turns out, plot uh, in, a, in a minute. Let's talk about the, the actors, etc. So we've got Alan Bates as Charles Crossley, we've got Susanna York as Rachel Fielding. Hmm, interesting names. What to do with cricket? I don't know. And John Hurt as Anthony Fielding. Um, we've got a load of other people. Jim Broadbent. Jim Broadbent gets into everything, even back in 1978. It's incredible. Uh, as the, the fielder in the mud. Uh, we've got Tim Curry as Robert Graves, the writer of the story himself, and a number of other people in here. And I just thought that perhaps um, the three, obviously, we'll talk about, but maybe mentioned something about Jim Broadbent because I think he did such a such a great job. Anyway, Alan Bates, Crossley, the weirdo with a shout. Mm. Any good? What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I think his performance was really good. He definitely comes off as very unsettling and unhinged and uh, yeah. but yet still he definitely portrays this um very worldly and educated guy but with kind of an unhinged mental instability. So I think he definitely plays that really well. And he, hmm. the way he's able to like charm and manipulate his way in is very, maybe silence of the lambs kind of <laughs> like he's able to like charm people, even though he's really kind of really this nasty, horrible guy, you know, that's very strange how he brings that off. Yes. Yeah, exactly. He's most unpleasant all the time, says unpleasant things, behaves in unpleasant ways, and yet has this, yes, well, yes. yeah, it seems like a supernatural power over both of them, really, which then brings up the question, is it really a supernatural power, or is it just something about his personality? Well, I'm not sure that's ever answered, but uh, that's how the film works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think his portrayal is really good. Hmm. I found him totally believable as it were um you know it's the weird, weird thing isn't it it's this willing suspense of disbelief when you get into the film and you're really into it and i felt he was that character mm. I, I think that's the best thing i've seen him do actually um and i've only seen him do a few things and he was in, what was he in whistle down the wind well you, he was you've very good in that you, you've acted with him, Caster bridge you've acted with i yes i started with him yeah, uh, yeah. in uh, yes it's true i actually acted alongside <laughs> alan bates in a bbc production of it's oh. true isn't it of yeah. um the mayor of Casterbridge. Back in the 1970s, I was on the screen for about 10 seconds, um, but I think I did. I was in the same coach as right. him at one what point. He, what was he like? Yeah, yeah I was a, like? an extra on. How old was I? I don't know, about nine, like? nine or something like that. Um, what was he like? I didn't really pick up much about his character, to be honest. I spoke, actually spoke to the guy who played Farfrey. Um, he seemed a very pleasant individual. I sat next to him. Um, yeah. My dad's arm was also in the <laughs> film. <laughs> It was in the series, yes. Yeah, so it was a court Excellent. scene, and then you just see part of his arm at the side of the Excellent. screen. Yeah. Well, that made it for me, that scene. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, do you want to I saw him in both of those, and I just thought, yeah, he was very good mm. in this. Yeah, go Mark, sure. No, no, I, I agree with you. Although I do find he is, as you said, unpleasant from the beginning. Uh, he's rather curt and unpleasant and pushes himself onto people. Mm. So I personally don't find him charismatic in the sense that, you know, you mentioned the Anthony Hopkins character from Silence of the Lambs is initially kind of charismatic. So I find him just a bit of a vulgar bore, you know, B-O-A-R, really. 
So you kind of think, well, why has it got such an, a sort of animal magnetism on these two people? I think he's good. And I think he sort of I got used to him. But I think um, mm. perhaps I could have done with a bit more light and shade at the beginning. Mm. But perhaps it's not that sort of character, you know. I think he's more unpleasant than he is in the book. At least I get that impression. Mm. He certainly says less. Yeah. He's more conversational in the book, which I think is a little more plausible. Mm. Maybe it works in the, in the film that he is... Yes, he doesn't say so much. The only thing, I, the only, what I wanted to say about this is, you think that his being unpleasant would be a significant barrier to, to not be friends with these people, but have such an influence upon these people. But there is always this undercurrent, as always, not an undercurrent, as there's always this very overt sense of the magic that he has. He's very upfront about that. Yeah, I think it's part of the way the film works is that he he intrigues people. Mm-hmm. They want to know about the magic for their own different reasons. So they mm. they kind of fall in love with the idea of the magic rather than just him. And I think he exploits that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. And of course, he is the, the direct opposite of uh, the John Hurt character. Yes. I think in terms of the way Susanna York reacts to him. I think it's a bit more, perhaps a bit more obvious in the story that they've got this sort of odd relationship where... I think in this short story, she keeps falling in love with people and their relationship works because she will tell him, oh, I've fallen in love with so-and-so, I've fallen in love with so-and-so, and he just goes along with it. And I think there's a sort of odd relationship between the two of them. So when this character walks in, he's full of swagger and charisma and macho-ness, for want of a better word, and she sort of falls for him because John Hurt is such a weedy person by comparison. Mm. Um, That's my sort of reading of the character, partly. Yes, in the book, it's clear that they have relationships, both of them outside of their partnership, isn't it? Mm. Uh, But in this, I didn't pick up initially in the film that she had had relationships outside at all. No, no. Mm. I I think what Ellen Bates kind of has is kind of like a rock star sort of magnetism, maybe Mm. like the bad boy. Keith Richards. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Keith Richards. (laughs) And that's why, even though he's hurt and horrible and kind of nasty that's why people are still drawn to him because he's got that kind of yeah persona yeah that's fair enough did it remind you of harold pinter yes when he delivers yes. his lines yes actually yeah. yes very pinter-esque the dialogue and the, the non-sequiturs and people talking about boring stuff when actually there's stuff going on underneath definitely mm. yeah uh, i mention it later with that scene where the first scene where the, he comes to sunday lunch mm-hmm. uh, particularly struck me that way he assumes the head of the table yeah and uh he reveals all these great secrets that he has that he's, he's dying to reveal to them really yes but he does it in such a ponderous way and mm-hmm. with great silences and every word counted for something and i thought oh this really does remind me of pinter and I noticed that Bates starred in um, The Caretaker, film version of The Caretaker, yes. back in 1963. So I just wondered how much he actually brought to that script. Hard to know, isn't it, really? I don't know the ins and outs of the script, whether they had him in the frame to begin with, in which case they might have slightly tailored the you know, the script to him, mm. or whether he's the kind of big actor who would have a say himself when it came to rehearsing yeah. and uh, filming it. I'm not sure. No, no. But anyway, that influence is certainly there. Mm. Um Okay, Susanna York as Rachel. Mark? Great, love Susanna York. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant in everything she does. I always, I always like her performance. Mm. Sort of a mixture of very feminine fragility and sort of steel kind of thing. Yes. She's got great depth to her character in, every, in all the things I've seen her in. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think she's... The camera loves her. You know, I mean, I think she's she looks just brilliant on, on film. Um, captures all the mm. nuances of the motions in her face and everything. Uh, absolutely yeah no i think she's uh, she's very good i think oh if she's in a film or oh, good uh, that'll be good <laughs> um, yes it's interesting you say that i think of her as you know her face is quite static really i find much of the time mm-hmm. and therefore the slightest movement you know of an eyebrow or a lip or yeah. whatever means an awful lot and so she's ideal for yes. she's ideal for, yeah. for movies because you can get right close up can't you and yeah yeah, and yeah yes that seems to be the way she worked lots of close-ups lots of really really you know close up tight up close-ups of all of them um which we we'll probably talk about a bit further on. Mm, sure. What else has she been in? Because I, I think this is the first time I've ever seen her in anything. Well, Superman. She was in the first Superman film. Oh, yes. She was really? Superman's mother. Yes. Superman's mum. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Opposite. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that you mention that, yeah, I can remember that. Yeah. The Killing of Sister George, which was that sort of controversial lesbian drama she was in, uh, 1968, along with. Uh, Beryl Reed. Oh, wow. Um, she was a talent too, wasn't she, Beryl Reed, actually? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
she, I mean, she hasn't done a huge amount, I guess, Susanna York. She's a lot on stage, I think. Mm. You know, I didn't know that she died. Oh, no, has she? Yeah, so about 10 years ago or so. Oh. I didn't realise. I mean, it was one of those things where I thought, oh, yeah, Alan Bates is gone. John, John oh. Hurt. Yeah, so I thought, oh, I wonder if uh, Susanna York's still with us. And I checked her Wikipedia page. No, she uh, she died from cancer about 10 years ago or so. Uh, yeah. Um, so Jim Broadbent's still with us. Um, <laughs> I was quite impressed. Um, <laughs> a young Jim Broadbent there as a, a psychiatric patient um, wallowing around in the mud. Um, but he did a really good job, I thought. <laughs> Have you seen his credit? How he's credited in, on Wikipedia and I think on the film as well. Um, in a cowpat? Fielder in cowpat. Cowpat, that's right. Yes, that must have been in the Wikipedia thing I saw, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Very thin, isn't he? Very thin compared with how we imagine him now. Hmm. But you can see the talent, can't you? <laughs> he puts everything into that, even though he's just uh, smearing mud on his belly. Uh, he whips <laughs> his clothes off at the end, doesn't he? And, and j- yes. jumps around in the rain. That's him. That's him. Yeah. And he's one who dies at the end as well. He's one of the three men to die, isn't he? Oh, yes, yes. Either through the lightning or the shout, mm-hmm. we don't know. I was wondering, does that does that him at the end ripping his clothes off and in the mud and whatever, does that count as a nude swim? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, it has to somewhere yeah. or other because we cannot discuss this unless it falls into that category of the nude swim. No, exactly. Well, John Hurt in the bath later on, surely. Surely that must count. Mm-hmm. That's true. And Susanna York. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, male nude swimming is, is the theme, is it not? So, <laughs> oh, is it? I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, dear. But is being in the bath really a swim or is it symbolic of a swim? Ah, see. Uh, mm. Well, there are moments in the bath when you're floating, so... Perhaps. Hmm. That could be a swim. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think it counts. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it counts. Oh, dear. Had you heard of Jerzy Skolimowski before? I have to confess I hadn't. No. This no. is the director. No. First time. Okay, so he's a Polish director, actor, mm-hmm. screenplay writer. I think it's... Is it Jerzy Skolimowski? He's also famous for the film Deep End, which I have recorded but not seen... Um, he was in Mars Attacks. Who's he? What? Sorry. He was in Mars Attacks. He was in Mars oh, Attacks. Who was he? Yes. Oh, okay. That's why he's credited as playing Doctor Ziegler. Have you seen it yet, Julian? I have. Not, I saw the beginning, but ah. got distracted by something. I've still not seen it through. I think, sorry. I think he works with Pierce Brosnan in the scenes together. They're scientists, actually. <laughs> mm. I, rec- I recognise the face, uh-huh. but that's all I know of him. Okay, so what do we think of the general direction, production, atmospheric, long scenes and long walks and close-ups for expression and you know, that sort of thing? Um, do you think it all worked? Yeah, I, I think it did. Um, I don't watch a ton of horror movies, but, you know, here in America, the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of horror movies is all about just stupid people making stupid decisions and you get a jump scare all the time and that, and that's horror in America and this is definitely a different type of horror and suspense it's kind of psychological horror yeah um yeah there are no jump scares at all are there i can't think no. of anything that made me react like that that makes it all the more unsettling is you just see that this one guy who is just for the most part an ordinary kind of scummy guy <laughs> who may or may not have a supernatural shouting power you know just the way he's able to worm into somebody's life like that is scary mm. i think the way it was shot you know there's movies where slow pacing like kills the movie but this isn't one of them this no. is like the slow pacing where it builds up the tension you know mm. and i think that was maybe one of the reasons i couldn't watch it all in one go i had to watch it in a couple of goes because the pacing just builds in tension really mm. really uh-huh. thick tension for me yeah. Yeah, it's that long walk leading up to the mm. shout. Yeah. How long does that go on for? It's, it's incredibly long, isn't it? And yeah. The only thing that happens is that the John Hurt character gets stitched. Yes, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, dear, I've got a stitch. Just wait for yeah. me. And because he doesn't wait, so then he carries on walking. I think, well, nothing's happening here, but it strangely enough, I'm carried along for, what is it, five minutes? Yeah. Just walking. Incredible. That's the other thing that bugs me about a lot of movies today is, like, you have literally you have like a cut every second or two mm. or they change the viewpoint so often that mm. when you go back and watch an older movie like this the longer shots really kind of let the film breathe and kind of live you know and you don't yeah, feel jerked absolutely. or cut. 
Sure. I, that business about the scene constantly changing, that really hit me with one of the Bond films. I can't remember which one it was. Um, not the last one. Mm. One of Daniel Craig ones, anyway. And there was a long sequence, a chase sequence. And I, there were so many cuts of different mm. angles. Mm-hmm. There was so much going on. I literally thought, I haven't got a clue what's going on here. They overdid it to that extent. I, I reckon that might have been Quantum of Solace. Could I, well I, it been. could have been because early on in that, it's just bam, bam, bam. and It's, it's a blur. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cinema should be about storytelling. And every shot needs to be there mm. and that that was just bang 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 and as you say if you don't know what's going on you sit back and you don't take any interest in you need to be invested in the character it doesn't matter what film it yes. is and i think nowadays as frank rightly says there's i don't know whether it's a lack of confidence a lack of artistry but they think the audience is going to be so bored after a second that they just mm. cut 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 and some of the best films I've seen have said, no, let's assume the audience can go along with this. And, yes. you know, there's a film called the, uh, the Quiet Place, which is a sort of psychological, tense horror film. And the shots go on for as long as they need to go on for because they, they assume the audience is invested in the story. And I think it's, a, it's probably a lack of confidence, but they've got a weak film, a weak script, and they think the only way they can keep this interest is bam, 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 you know. Quiet mm. Place, is that the one with the aliens that can hear yeah. the sound? Yes. Yeah, that was yeah. good. Yeah, amazing. Um, but I mean, I think the best films are the ones where the, the filmmakers actually think, well, the audience is quite intelligent. Yes. You know, let's let's not pander to them. Yes. Let's make them work a little bit or, or just be invested in what's going on. It's respectful, isn't it? I agree with yeah. you. And this film is very respectful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. is an intelligent film. There's no doubt about it. And it, it assumes that the audience is enjoying it, yeah. in, it yes, in a questioning and intelligent way, certainly. Not sure about the music, though. You don't like the music? <laughs> I'm not sure I do, really. Oh. I know you do, Mark. I, but, uh... Well, I'm, I've got a fondness for electronic music. Mm. Watching it again, I just love all the stuff he does with the tapes and the technology mm-hmm. there. It uh, yeah. no. goes back to my love of Doctor Who and the Radiophonic Workshop, which is this BBC electronic workshop that produces all weird and wonderful electronic stuff. So I love that. And the, the soundtrack which is by, um, I think I sent you a link, Julian, to it. It's some, uh, Genesis, isn't it? It's the guy, a couple of guys from Genesis. Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford. Yes. So Tony Banks, keyboard player, yeah. Mike Rutherford, guitarist, bassist for Genesis, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah I, I like all the sort of electroacoustic mm. stuff. I like all that, and I like the way that dovetails into the general soundtrack of the movie. I think that's mm. that's really well done. And I, th- I also think that connects to the, the sort of magical notion of everything's connected, which will come on to themes, and so I think that works well thematically. Mm. It's just the synthesised theme music. I, I just It works. I think it works. It's okay. But it just feels really dated to me now. Um, I just think, ah, oh, couldn't you have something a little bit more... Orchestral? More substance. Well, yeah, maybe. Um, it's a bit Chariots of Fire, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah. Uh, which I think is, is very dated, the music on that. I don't mind it. I like, I like that kind of music, so I'm, I'm more than happy with it. Mm. Oh, there but, you, you know. go. <laughs> actually, well, no, but I didn't actually think about it. I was thinking, what music? I don't even know yeah, music, actually, in this movie. I always prefer to have less music than more in any films. I like to sort of think, well, I, I'll decide how I feel about this scene without the musician sort of making me feel sad or happy or whatever. Yeah. Much uh-huh. too much of that. I don't know. I was just, you just think it's a bit weak? Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I do a think it's a bit weak, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just that aspect of it. But as I say, I like the way the sound effects are used because he's doing this music concrete. He's that kind of composer where you, you find sounds and then you manipulate those. You, know, you don't create them electronically to start with. You record them. You find them in the real world and then you use them. And so I, I like the fact that he had this studio in his house. Yes. And then those sounds were dovetailed into the general soundscape of the film. So, for example, you know, to have a, mm. a bee in the garden when she's doing a little bit of gardening and then you, you find that he's, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. got a bee yeah. in the studio he's recording and things like that. It then makes you wonder whether the rain that we heard at the beginning isn't actually part of the music, you know. Uh-huh. It's not just the sound. Yeah, so I, I like the sort of philosophical approach to it. And, of course, he tries to recreate the shout, doesn't he, towards the end? Yes, he does, mm. yes. Using all his technical stuff, and he can't do it. Mm. Mm. Which is why he's interested to find out the shout, isn't it? And he even has a Francis Bacon picture, doesn't yes, he? Um, yes, a reproduction yes, yes. of it in his studio, which is one of the, the screaming Pope pictures. Yes. So he's obviously looking yes. for the... The ideal shout, even before he meets Crossley, which is weird. Yes. Weird coincidence, or is it a coincidence? Yeah, is it fate? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, Frank, you mentioned those sort of no jump scares. I watched it today again, and of course, that whole scene when he's leading John Hurt up to the sandbags is incredibly quiet. And so I was uh-huh. sort of turning the sound up <laughs> and uh-huh. um, quite high, and I've forgotten how loud the shout is. And it just, it's, it's such, it makes me almost jump, and I knew it was coming. Yeah. Uh, 
my 16, 17 month old toddler sort of looked up and, and sort of made it. <laughs> <laughs> I felt a bit bad about that. But imagine seeing that at the cinema it would have blown you away, I think. It would have been incredible. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So I know what you mean, but that moment did make me jump, even though I knew it was coming, oddly enough. Mm. Mm. Well, that brings me on to talk about any particular scenes that jumped out for us. So we'll start with the shout scene itself. Well, I didn't have the sound right up like you did, but I, w- I was a bit underwhelmed by the shout itself. Um, hmm. the sound up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean the content <laughs> of the shout. I mean, it seemed to me to be just basically a loud shout plus sort of windy sounds, and I just thought, couldn't you have done something more creative? You know, you're expecting this to be something absolutely extraordinary, and it is just well, it's just a, a big shout. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't last. You know, it feels like it's over very quickly as well. Um, yeah, the only thing yeah. that really. I think that made that scene work really well. Well, the the long walk up to the absolutely perfect spot to do it. It's just like in the short story, Sandbank at a high level and all that sort of thing. And of course, the fact that animals die, you've got these sheep falling over, dying, and then you see the girl dead. And and unfortunately, the shepherd has also died. That that all worked brilliantly, I thought. But the shout itself, I just thought, couldn't you come up with something just a little bit more creative than just, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't notice a girl dead. Which girl dead? Gull. Seagull. Oh, the gull. Sorry, I thought you were thinking. <laughs> Miguel. Yes, oh. Centrinians. The, the gals. Yes. No, yeah, no. The gals. Crossley himself picks up a dead uh, seagull, doesn't he? Yeah, Which yeah, yeah. clearly yes. was flying by at the time. Mm. Mm. Any uh, any scenes that jumped out at you? Metaphorically, that is. Um <laughs> Not for me specifically. I thought just as a whole, I mean, it was good. I would say if I had to force at gunpoint to choose one, I'd say the, the thunderstorm at the end was really kind of cool. Um, just the sudden downpour of rain and the lightning and stuff was cool. Mm. It's like a punctuation mark to the end of his story. It, it adds that just mm. little bit of unsettling tone to it, you know. That's true. It's a total contrast to the the gentleness of the cricket match earlier on. Out of nowhere, um, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll know where it a, does, yeah. it does. And it's introduced, isn't it, in order to introduce the lightning, mm-hmm. which then becomes this big question mark at the end. Did people die because of the shout or did they die because of the lightning? And that's what it's there for. But, but it was, it's cleverly done. You, you don't feel like it's just set up for that. It's a dramatic change of scene that has the consequences and all going berserk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is where, of course, we get Jim Broadbent going berserk <laughs> in a very great way in front of the screen. Um, do you know, going back to that, uh, the, the first cricket match, the first part of the cricket match where it, it's all nice and sunny, um, one thing I really liked about that is when they were, just as they were setting up before they started playing, was the way all these elderly men were arranging deck chairs um, mm. and muttering amongst each other and chuckling and they were acting in a slightly confused way and there were sort of shots of cows and peacocks. And mm. I just just loved all that. It was, mm, it was yeah. also seemingly irrelevant, but built up the scene, yeah. the, the atmosphere. The mise-en-scene builds it all up. It's sort of yeah. very documentary style. It does look like yes. he said to them all, yes. look, just go off and prepare for this and I'll just film you as and when I feel. It, it, it doesn't feel set up at all, does it? It feels no. very natural. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already mentioned the Sunday lunch, um, which I thought, I thought was a fantastic mm-hmm. scene and the pintoresqueness of it, the long silences yes. and all the concentration on little expressions, etc. Uh, I just love the way that they all play that scene. Um, yes. John Hurt and his sort of quintessentially English politeness of, you know, sort of chuckling and incredulity at the things that Crossley is saying, I know. Uh, but then changing expression to concern and disgust. And he was a real master of these tiny expressions, mm. very much like Susanna York, I think. Uh, they were a great pairing. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're a realistic couple, aren't they? I think mm. those two. Mm. Yeah, I liked his. I like his. As you listening to what he's saying about having an Aboriginal wife and then killing his own children. Yeah. Um, what's what? what what's, <laughs> yeah. is, he just, is he just delusional? What's he talking about? You know, mm. yeah. I think he's saying that's the only natural death is to kill your own offspring. Um, and they, they do react in a very quintessentially English polite way, don't <laughs> yes. they? Which is ridiculous, yes. really. But we, we do tend to do that. Oh, oh well, we, what oh, do you say now? Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah, what the Queen say, Oh, I see. <laughs> Yeah. I've got a note there. I made sort of lots of notes. And there's, after all this, when he's talked all this story and I've talked about this Aboriginal person. I think waving his pointing bone around, and then John Hurt says, "Well, where would he get hold of a tailcoat?" And that—that's all he says. <laughs> only sort of that's, his only, that's the only thing he really understand. Brilliant. Mm. And mm. also, he mentions in that um, it hadn't rained for—I uh, think he says for four months. So basically, this guy comes and does a sort of rain dance. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen a film called *The Last Wave* by Peter Weir, Australian director. No. 
No, it's an incredible film. Very, very similar atmosphere to this one. Uh-huh. Superb Australian film where it hasn't rained for months and months and months, and it's very hard to describe unless you actually see the film. But Peter Weir was going to direct this film, apparently, according to Wikipedia. Ah. Um, so there's, there is that theme of Aboriginal magic, dream time, and this, the whole Australian myths and things that come into that film. And I was strongly reminded of this film. And Picnic at Hanging Rock, again, actually, very similar atmosphere to this one, I think, in terms of the atmosphere of the location and the isolation and the music. Right. But yeah, that's, that scene is good when he starts talking like that, because you'd think, how do you, how would you... Well, I'd be on the phone mm. to somebody. Come and get it. <laughs> the police. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all right. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. I mean, some of the stuff he comes out with is truly horrific. Yeah. And he does it in such a calm way, doesn't he? Yes. Um, as if it's yes. just completely normal for him, and anybody should listen to what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. And I, I found that actually some of this does comport with uh, what Sir James Fraser wrote in his book, The Golden Bough, which was written back in 1890. So it's quite possible that Crossley... You know, the character Crossley could have read this stuff. He's supposed to be well-read, isn't he? So he could have read that and be making all this up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or, or indeed, he could have gone to Australia and experienced it. So, I mean, we've got, he talks about um, some witch doctor, because they wanted rain, as you say. So this witch doctor sort of mm. cut his stomach. And he talks about psychic surgery as well and things like that. Um, but let me just quote here from James Fraser, from the Golden Bow, 1890. Scottish anthropologist. Um, this is from chapter three, section three, where he's talking about contagious magic, and he has a, an Australian example here. Quote, in time of severe drought, the diary of central Australia, loudly lamenting the impoverished state of the country and their own half-starved condition, call upon the spirits of their remote predecessors, whom they call Muramuras, to grant them power to make a heavy rainfall. A hole is dug about 12 feet long and 8 or 10 broad, and over this hole a conical hut of logs and branches is made. Two wizards, supposed to have received a special inspiration from the Muramuras, are bled by an old and influential man with a sharp flint. After the rains have fallen, some of the tribe always undergo a surgical operation, which consists of cutting the skin of their chest mm-hmm. and arms with a sharp flint, etc. Absolutely horrible. But, um, you know, I mean, Robert Graves, presumably, as a literary man, would have read that book. So, the, you know, substance comes from there. I mean, a lot of the stuff about magic that Fraser talks about presumably mm. comes from there. But I just wonder whether Crossley himself, as this well-read man, you know, this could be part of the myth that he's creating for himself. He might have read the book and creating a totally false story mm. as he narrates it to the character Robert Graves in, in, in the counting box. It could all be made up. Well, he said himself, doesn't he? The only way to make the, the story truthful is by changing it all the time. <laughs> yes, by lying, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Because that retains the truth. I mean, I made a note on the short story and it's, um, yeah, when I say my story is true, I mean I'm telling it in a new way. Um, what does <laughs> that mean? Kind of part of storytelling tradition. Like if you go and see like an oral storyteller, that's kind of what they do, you know. Yeah. So maybe he's just kind of maintaining that tradition of storytelling. Yeah, but no, doesn't that sort of storytelling rely on consistency? Every time it's said, it's said the same, isn't it? I, I mean, I don't know. I, depends, I thought that yeah, or the case. Whereas he I'm not sure that's necessarily true. No, okay. You can have a core of a story that is true, and yet you can have peripheral things that are slightly mm-hmm. different. Witness okay. the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. You know, biblical scholars will, I mean, uniformly they will say, you know, there's a core to that. And yet, the different gospel mm-hmm. writers will write things from their slight different perspectives, etc. A Q. <laughs> you know, if you, anybody walks down the road, I mean, I did this at school and did uh, an RE at school, and we'd each walk down the same corridor and come back and report what we saw. We all walked down the same corridor, and yet we all saw very slightly different things. So I think actually slight variations is, is part of the storytelling okay. tradition. Yeah. So, but, I th- but what I think is going on here, and we'll come back to this theme, is that uh, Robert Graves, writing the story, is deliberately setting up this dilemma. Is Crossley saying, I'm telling you an absolute lie? Or is Crossley saying, I'm telling you a story that's slightly changed, but it's true? We don't know whether Crossley's lying or not. And I think even in this statement, or oh, the truth is, has got to be alive so I can change it, even this statement is ambiguous. We don't know whether it means I'm lying or whether he's, he's being creative in the truth. <laughs> you know 
Do you mm-hmm. think that the shout itself perhaps should have been left to happen off screen? So even that, we're not sure about. That would have been an interesting choice. Yeah, you know, because I don't know because we're inside. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know because we're inside Crossley. This is it. It's a story within a story, isn't it? So we're inside mm. Crossley's story that he's telling inside this counting hut, mm. the scoring hut. So the shout that happens in the sand dunes is entirely within that story. So yeah. I don't know whether it matters whether we heard it or not, really. I think perhaps it might have been better if we saw it but didn't hear it. Yes. That would have been cool. Yeah. We saw the wind from it or something like that, the effect, the sort of G-force on uh, <laughs> Anthony's face or something like that. Uh, I don't know. We did see a bit of the G-force, but if that's all we, yeah. we saw, maybe that would have worked better. I don't know. It's a small point. It would have been an interesting choice to not show it um, and kind of leave it up to your mind. But then I think you might come away with this feeling like, well, what just happened? I mean, it was, the movie yeah. already gives us anyways. I think I think we would have had to see something. Maybe a silent shout would have been. I think probably, as you say, I didn't, I didn't mind the shout. I thought it was good. I mean, I thought it was okay. Fine. He shouts, and it's a weird, strange, bizarre, radiophonic mm-hmm. workshop style shout, but mm. good. Maybe we should have had the organ. <laughs> from the church organ <laughs> that kept on appearing didn't it <laughs> I don't know yeah, uh, like a sonic uh, electric guitar like wailing or you know so- something different yeah actually that's probably my favourite scene when he turns up late to play the organ at the church oh yes yeah, that's a great scene isn't it there's something so true about that it's funny the film is yeah funny are we allowed to find it funny mm. i mean the juxtaposition of i think as we mentioned before the very english way of you know listening to somebody talking all these this tall stories and the stuff <laughs> yes. the stuff in the cricket match i think it's at the end of the cricket match but this guy just falls in a <laughs> chair and he just falls over that happens right at the beginning of the movie doesn't it we go through all the story with crossley yeah. and then we see him picked up at the end at the end <laughs> as if he's been left there for an extraordinarily long time but like a lot of pinter stuff um the caretaker and the birthday party you're kind of tense and it's disturbing but it's funny hmm. as well and there's that sort of bleak dark humor of are we um, should i find this exchange funny or, or is it dark <laughs> yes. or it's, it can be a mixture can't mm. it especially mm-hmm. if you have somebody loopy like alan bates you're kind of should i find this funny or should i take a step back and find it rather disturbing um can you explain the scene where john hurt comes up to him in his bedroom and he's naked i think in bed sitting in bed and he says oh sorry he said no no come in and then at the end of the scene alan bates sort of just points to his stomach or puts his hands on his stomach and that as if that means something is that because he was the person who had the operation on to cause the rain to fall i think that's an implication right yes yeah yeah. do you remember at the beginning we have this weird sort of tail-coated guy Mm. in the credit sequence who's got this bone Mm. and he drops the bone disappears but he's also taken the buckle from her shoe. Yeah. And Crossley later has the buckle from her shoe. So okay. it sort of implies that he is, in fact, mm. in some weird supernatural way, he is this sort of arch witch doctor. Oh, it's, you know, mm. his job to make sense of it on that level, doesn't it? <laughs> have you noticed in the, the titles of the film, this is incredibly subtle. But if you watch those titles very carefully, uh, towards the end of them, when the titles fade out... And fade up, he appears in front of the titles very briefly. No. It's a very subtle effect. The titles fade out, his image is over the title for a second and then and then fades out. Mm. It's definitely been done deliberately. I think from the immediately it gives you a sort of slightly unsettling effect. Mm. Um, a bit like him appearing in the mirror above their bed, yet he's yeah, not there. Yeah, that's yeah. a classic yeah, yeah, vampire kind crazy. of technique. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, they, when they're walking, uh, the couple are walking along the street really early on, there's a, people pulling out a mirror from a, a room, aren't they, from a shop? Yes. Mirrors. Mm, mirrors. Yes. Always important yes. in films. Mirrors. Yes, yes. And <laughs> I think, it, doesn't it go from that to him experimenting with marbles on top of a tin, and which is a shiny surface? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can we say something about the, the Francis Bacon moments? Because mm. we have a couple, as I've already mentioned, I think it's, it's called Head Six, Mm. from 1948 so this is one of the screaming popes yeah obviously that we've already said you know that's about the shout so anthony's searching for this sound already which is rather weird that he should be doing that even before he meets crossley uh, but then we also have this other uh, reproduction of a painting by francis bacon which is the paralytic child walking on all fours from 1961 a very disturbing mm. distorted image next to a window frame mm. 
and Rachel at a certain point in the film, while she's in her sort of sexual reverie under the power of this magic, um, because he's, he's got this buckle that belongs to her, so he has power over her in this sympathetic magic way. Um, she assumes that pose, doesn't she, for a couple of seconds? Yes. Um, and we get black and white film just for a second, perhaps, to register that this is like a snapshot. And she's next to a window frame. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What does that mean? It's a really creepy, creepy moment. Oh, it is, isn't it? Is it almost too on the nose, though? It's too obvious, isn't it? Oh, look, that's the same as the painting we saw. Do you think? Well, I certainly, when I first saw it, I didn't notice. Oh, so okay. maybe, you know, seeing it time and again, mm. maybe that sense of, oh, it's too on the nose develops. But I think an initial, mm. no, I think you'd have to do that for an initial audience for them to get it at all. And the reason it's black and white, I would suggest, is because the the painting itself is inspired by the Edward Maybridge nineteenth century photographs that he took of people moving, and that they were they were black and white. Oh, okay. So it's almost like going back to the source. Because when I saw that, I thought, well, why is it black and white when we've already seen this painting and its colour? Mm. So it's almost like going back to the source of the painting. Mm. Um, it's, it's a good moment, though. I agree. It's, it it's a creepy moment. Just wondering whether it's too obviously horror. I don't know. <laughs> it's creepy. It's, it's not horrific, though, is it? It is a sort of playing with your mind kind of thing. Mm, yeah. Not sure quite what it means. Job to know what that, no. that means, but it would certainly works. Well, it's very animalistic. It's a very animalistic, isn't it? She's, yes, she's, yes, I mean, yes, it is, it is. And the whole sexual thing, it's very animalistic, and she's naked, and she's sort of yes. walking on all fours. You, it's like she's behaving like an animal, mm. an animal mm. state. Mm. Yes, and there's a scene later, isn't there, where she's clearly reduced to that, where she's kneeling next to him at the dinner table. Yes. Uh, a most <laughs> extraordinarily disturbing, but yeah. brilliantly pulled off scene again, where she's sort of kissing his hand. She's yeah. she's like a dog next to him. Yeah. It's almost like she's not there or she's totally caught in this weird magic. Yes. And she and Crossley are just openly having this affair mm. and Crossley just staring really coldly at Anthony, who is there mm. just being polite gentlemen again, trying to kind of make sense of the situation. Mm. But she's totally like she's possessed, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, she's reduced to this sort of... She's become a dog. It's weird. Become an, ob- <laughs> an object. An object, yeah, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. she has. Mm. The hair's on the back of my neck going off now. Um the only thing that's not consistent with the book, I think, there is that you know the the Anthony character is sort of horrified by this. Oh, you know, what, what do you think you're doing, sort of thing? But and yet in the book they have these extramarital affairs, and that's sort of part of their you know it's an open marriage sort of thing. Mm. So would he have been that disturbed? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there is this sense that he's having an affair with the cobbler's wife, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, you know, why yeah. bother with that? Because nothing really happens with that. But I think that's there to connect with the book that there is this infidelity going on but mm. i understood from the book that it was both of them and they both understood that so um, the fact okay. that he's a bit sort of quiet about this and doesn't want her to know about the cobbler's wife is it's certainly well, it's different to the book i mean in many cases it's very similar to the book i think but just these little tweaks that are you know, that are different i mean i took some in a better way some in a worse way yeah i took it from the story that it was only rachel who was sort of having these ongoing affairs with people but you, you say that both of them... Ah, I thought it, I thought it was both of them. So I keep calling yeah. it the book. It's only a short story. But you corrected uh, me. It doesn't matter. And actually, that's interesting. We talk about the story. The story's quite short. You can read it in sort of 20 minutes or something. Mm. And the film is short as well. That's something we haven't mentioned. It's only an hour and 20 minutes. It's mm. barely a feature film, like an hour and a half or so. And it's great because it packs so much in it when actually it's quite mm. a short film. Mm. And it's nice. Yeah. Oh, it's only an hour and 20, but, but as you said, Frank, it's so intense... It's almost easier to watch it in two halves, isn't it? Yeah, it, you're right. It is short, but it definitely does not feel short at all. No. Um, no. I think just from Julian's description of everything that happened earlier, like in his summary was like, oh, yeah, all that did happen. It's like, but you don't really, it doesn't necessarily feel like that. You got to watch it probably a few times to pick up on it. And- mm-hmm. Um, well, I just want to do the last bit, which is you know, sort of themes and messages and trying to make sense of this. Mm. Um, I've got, well, I've, I've put three things down, but I think we've talked about one of them, which dovetails into one of the others. So and that was, you know, one of them was to do with truth. You know, you would have talked about this. Crossley's telling the story and he says variation keeps it fresh and therefore true. You know, this mustn't drag and become false. Mm. <laughs> okay, so what's going on there? And I think that sets up this question as to whether he's lying or not, and therefore feeds into the bigger theme that I've got here. I'll run it by you, see what you think. Um, so I think the main theme of this is belief and choice, that whatever you're choosing to believe, certainly about big themes, you know, big spiritual themes, meaning of life and all that sort of thing, belief boils down to an existential choice. 
we can see the same evidence, we can hear the same testimony, we can look at the same data. But in the final analysis, we do have to make a choice, a kind of act of the will. Are we going to interpret it this way or that way? Because everything in Crossy's story can be seen as just a figment of his imagination, or he could be telling the truth. How are we to know? And even in the, the film, we could say, well, the key to answering whether he's telling the truth or not is... Let's concentrate on the first higher level narrative of this. That's the cricket match. That's the truth. You know, that's what's going on. He tells the story inside the cricket match. The story's mm-hmm. questionable, but the cricket match we're seeing. Okay, so later on, we go back to the cricket match and we apparently see a shout or hear a shout. But do we? You know, if it was a real shout and people died as a consequence of the shout, we'd know that he was telling the truth. It was all true. But we, there's this room for doubt about it because of the lightning. He could have been killed by the lightning. So could the doctor have been killed by the lightning? Although it says in the film and in the and in the short story that, oh, well, the doctor died, but mm. he had his hands over his ears in an yeah. unusual way. He wouldn't have done that if it was just the thunder and lightning. Well, we don't know. We're left yeah. wondering. And I think that's the point. You know, we look at the same data we hear the same testimony mm. and we have to we, we basically have to choose between these mm. things um i think that's a good analysis of it yeah i think um it's like a good mystery one of my teachers in school said like a lot of mysteries will wrap it up and tell you who did it but they're like the best mysteries are the ones that they don't answer for you and you have to choose what you believe yeah so i think that's mm. definitely a good theme for this movie for sure is like you know you look at the data you have to you know, make that best decision yourself. The reason why I was led towards that was because I started thinking in terms of the things that happened inside Crossley's story, and they seem to involve, obviously, claims to the supernatural, but these other characters being drawn into the question, is this real or not? So Anthony, he wants to hear the sound. He's told that it's a supernatural sort of thing, has this weird power, mm-hmm. and he's intrigued, and he wa- he wants to believe it, you know? Mm-hmm. He doesn't believe it to start with, but then he oh, he's intrigued, and he wants to. Mm-hmm. So then there's the question, does that wanting to actually mean you, in hearing it, you, you know, you psychologically induce your own, you know, almost close-to-death experience just because you, you so want to believe it, or do you tap into something real? There? The same with her, with the buckle. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants, really, to get into, into an affair. So what does she do? Does she, mm-hmm. Is she genuinely affected by this buckle, or is she so intrigued by the romance of this idea that she kids herself? You know what I mean? So there's this mm-hmm. two ways of looking at those smaller elements. I thought, ah, maybe that's a key to understanding what's going on with the whole thing. The whole thing, because you can't work out the whole thing. You're left with that question at the end. Perhaps that's the point and saying we have to make a kind of existential decision about these major mm. questions in life. You know. Have we even mentioned the stones? You know, that's very odd. Um, they're important in the story. They're more important yeah. in the short story, yeah. I think, than they are in the film. Mm. Um, because he wakes up from fainting after the shout and he suddenly... He knows how to mend a shoe. Yes. In the story, he just says, you know, oh, I'm a, I must be a shoemaker. <laughs> and then he says, no, no, hang on. No, I'm a photographer. Mm. And the stone that he's got is somehow captured the soul of the shoemaker, the cobbler, because later on he meets the cobbler in the film and mm. the cobbler says, oh, yes, it was almost as if my body was opened up and skin was raked off and then I woke up and I was lying in the corner of the room and stuff. What do we make of that? I mean, if this is a story, it's a story anyway that one person is telling. So the whole thing could be made up. Yes. But if there's some truth in it, what does this mean? Well, well the thing that wasn't so clear in the film, and I don't think they made as much of it as they should have done, because you know, in, the, in the short story, there's a lot more explanation about the stones, mm. isn't there? You know, these stones weren't clearly representative of the people, whereas in the story they were. It was definitely this sort of sympathetic mm. magic, this imitative magic, because this is what, what James mm. Fraser says, there's a t- certain kind of imitative magic where there's some characteristic about the stone that clearly represents somebody. Mm. Now, that wasn't clear. Um, yeah. Had that been clearer, I think we'd have then understood what was going on more definitely. Always, the reason why he's so easily found Crossley's stone is because it l- kind of looks like Crossley in some way. So that's why he's found it. <laughs> what, in the story? Because in the film, he sort of digs it up mm. from the sand, doesn't he? It's there. Yeah, that's what I mean. In the, is it there with the buckle? <laughs> yeah, it's not so clear why he finds it so easily in the film, yeah. on in the film, also, they're, they're on. Sorry, you lost you, Mark. You'll have to say that again. Lost you. Oh, can you hear me now? That's better. Is that all right? Yes, can hear you now. Um, yeah. Okay. At the beginning of the film, the couple wake up from having had the same dream of this character walking towards them mm. that you see in the mm. titles, I guess. And there's that mm. sort of pointing bone under the sand isn't there as well. Yeah. Yes. What does it mean? <laughs> mm. What does it all mean? Well, I, I just think it's all part of this sort of sympathetic magic worldview that 
I reckon it's probably lifted from James Fraser's investigations and writings. And this is the world that is inside Crossley's head. Now, whether that's a true experience or whether it's just his story, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, does it? The magical worldview doesn't make any sense. You know, everything's interconnected. Well, what does that mean, you know? Um, mm. But, you know, it leaves the question as to whether it's real or not within the film. And I think that then poses the, the existential question. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I would, because this is so fluid in terms of interpretation, I can look at it and say, well, I'll look at it from a theological point of view. And, you know, I'll say, when it comes to you know, matters of believing in God or not, well, this is not a Christian film by any means, but it, mm. you know, to this extent, there's a similar sort of question that comes up. Um, you know, we can present it with the same evidence or the same arguments against or for the existence of God. And, you know, it's been going on for so many thousands of years. We must know by now, It's a when it comes to it, it's a matter of choice, you know. It's not to say it's a blind step into the dark. It's not. There, there are evidences, there are testimonies, there are witnesses, there are mm. arguments, you know, philosophical arguments, etc. But at the end of the day, we can either choose to take those on board or not. Um, what are we going to do? And it's, I think the same with the story. We either go with it and say, yes, Crossley's telling the truth about all this. He has all these weird powers. Or we choose, as an act of the will, to say, no, that's not the world I wish to, to stand in. Um, I think that's how it's working. Mm. Do you think, though, I think the only flaw I have with the film is at, at the end when it gets a bit Sweeney, when the police arrive with guns <laughs> yes, and things. Yes, I'm always a bit, bit disappointed with that. Oh, he's an escaped convict. Was, you know, I just feel oh, it's a bit sad after all this sort of you know mysticism and stuff just to have a couple of armed policemen turn up. But it's almost as if, well, what do we do now? How do we, how do we get out of this? Oh, I know, have some police turn up and shoot him. <laughs> uh, whatever. That happens in the, it does actually happen in the story, um, but uh, weirdly enough, he doesn't shout at that point does he in the uh, film he shouts and kills the policeman but in the short story because Anthony's hitting this stone um he doesn't get to do the Mm. shout he suddenly loses his powers and starts chuckling and dancing doesn't he which is Mm. perhaps they should have done that i don't know perhaps they thought they couldn't bring that off that would be too peculiar to do or would turn it into a joke at the end i don't know he does smash he smashes the stone in the film doesn't he with his shoe slightly unrealistically i think smashes it and then of course it should be a hammer really shouldn't it yeah well it's Mm. a hammer in the story and it makes Mm. more sense um Mm. yeah he smashes it and then presumably alan bates that's when he falls down the stairs i think doesn't he that's right yeah but he does manage to do a last shout (laughs) kills the police (laughs) kills the policeman but that doesn't Uh, happen in the story but yeah I, i know what you mean but that's robert graves's fault for writing that in. Although I noticed that they come to arrest him in the story for killing adults, yes. two men and a woman in Sydney, whereas in the film it's killing his own children. I suppose they ratcheted up yeah. the, the horror of that to make it even more horrendous. We haven't even mentioned bicycles. Um, I'm coming to the end of this. Bicycles. <laughs> there are a lot of bicycles in it. Well, there's one bicycle. Oh, no, there's two, I suppose. But yeah. when he yeah. leaves the bicycle outside the church and this hand comes and, and does the air from it and stuff. Um, and there's that scene where John Hurt and the woman he's having an affair with, Carol Drinkwater, they're riding on the bike, aren't they? Oh, yes. And I mean, yes. that seems very sort of, to me, sexual, kind of liberated, riding on, laughing, and it's all lovely. Mm. And I think later on, Alan Bates and Susanna York are on a bicycle again, sort of having the same experience. Oh, yeah. Is that right? I'm not sure about that. I don't actually recall that. Yeah. So, I don't know whether that means anything. One thing I thought was really odd is why he's called Anthony, because mm. in the story, he's called mm. Richard. That's, that's the only change that I could see <laughs> amongst the names. What, what was that about? I did, yeah, that's a strange uh, detail to change. <laughs> it could be something very basic, like there was a Richard so-and-so who was an electronic musician, and you have to run these checks past names for everything. Could be something as basic as that. Mm. Don't know. Richard Fielding. Yeah. Or what if it was based on a true story and they had to change the name for the movie? Possibly. There are all sorts of boring reasons it could be that. Or maybe it's a sort of directorial joke. Crossley himself says you've got to tweak stories to make them alive. Mm, Maybe the production itself has tweaked the story to keep it alive. (laughs) And notice also that right at the beginning, Rachel comes in to see these dead bodies. She just comes in and says, where where is he? And the lady says, in the dining room. But at the end, the same scene is run again. Mm. And as she runs in, the nurse or whatever says to her, oh, Rachel. And then she says, oh, where is he? in the uh, dining room there's just a uh, tiny tweak what was yeah. the point in that was it again just this slight changing of the tradition as it were the story 
don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're playing the same game as Crossley. Because those three people, those three corpses there, um, Alan Bates and the, the guy who runs... I suppose it's Tim Curry, is it? And the other guy in the... No, Tim Curry, who is Robert Graves, gets away okay. because he then lives to tell the story. And interestingly, according to the commentary on the DVD, Robert Graves himself had two accounts as to how this idea came to him. One was that somebody told him the story... <laughs> <laughs> Which means it could be true. I think he's playing with us there. Um, mm. Why not? Story within a story within a story within a story, etc. Yeah. Um, or that he was walking on the beach one day, picked up a stone and thought, hmm, maybe there's a soul in here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't know. Um, I think he's yeah. playing with us. Why not? Yeah. Hmm. I do like the circularity of the film. I do like that. that start, I, I didn't quite twig it slightly different at the end, but I like the fact that it starts... And then it sort of ends on the, on the same moment, and you could you could effectively run it on and on ad infinitum, couldn't you? The whole thing could just run it as a perpetual loop forever. Yes, yes, I like mm. that. Although the the ending is slightly longer, isn't it? Because you see at the end that she pulls away the veil, and you see Crossley's face. Yeah, and then she takes the buckle from around his neck. Yes, and that of course, and then the very slow fade out. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then the queen comes in and has a cup of tea. That's very odd. That moment, right. yeah. and a, an elderly lady comes in. Anyway. Oh, that's um, yes, that's was, good. That's good. I love that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but, but this taking of the buckle, you know, I thought, oh well, that kind of proves that it's all true. You know, he really had the buckle, never had the power over her. But then I thought, no, no, no. You could interpret that the other way and say that really she was sorry for Crossley. And just allowed him to have her buckle because he was a bit pathetic and wanted to have her buckle around his neck. You know, it doesn't really tell you anything. Mm. It's not proof. (laughs) So you're still left with, do you want to believe his story or not? Mm. Yeah. How annoying. (laughs) It is. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But all the more interesting for it. Mm. So I think we've reached the end. I'm going to say I think it's a great film. I love it. Um, The conversation itself has revealed the fact that it's full of interesting questions. And I think the fact that it deals with sort of occult themes, I don't think should freak people out because it's not what you'd think of as a sort of classic occult-themed movie that takes you into dark places. I I didn't feel about that, really. I mean, it does unnerve. But what I've got out of it is asking these deeper questions that I can come back to, you know, asking even theological questions. Mm. So... I think it's a very positive experience. It's a more, it's a more subtle, subtle evil and mm. more subtle and realistic evil. Mm. It's like the, the occult is just like the window dressing on this like really normal kind of evil thing, you know? Mm. Yeah, especially because we don't know whether any of it's true or not. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, it could all be just his fanciful ideas from the, from this extensive reading that he's done while he's in the hospital. So. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way it just asking it makes you ask questions. I think that's good. Any film that makes you just say, Well, is this is this true? Is you know anything that allows you to question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So thank you ever so much, chaps, for coming on to talk about yet no. another Yeah, go on. Mm-hmm. I just said you're welcome. <laughs> uh, sorry, you're breaking up Mark, so it's difficult to know what you're saying. Are you still there? Ah. Are either of you still there? Hello, hello. Uh-huh. I think you're coming back in. You were doing like crackling again, I couldn't hear you. Hello? Again, can't hear you. Oh, okay. I couldn't hear you either, Frank. Can you hear? Can, oh, I'm, can I'm you hear? Hello, hello. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, can, I can hear you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Go on then, Mark. This, this, this is a good way to end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're just all cracking up. Yes. It's the dark powers getting at us. That's what it is. It's all going to chaos. <laughs> I'll probably leave all this in. It's so crazy. <laughs> the supernatural shout has destroyed the show. Which one is that? Thanks, Frank. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just say, uh, obviously recommended, uh, so 1978, The Shout. If you can track it down somewhere in a a DVD shop, a second-hand shop or something, do do so because it's... Definitely a a weird weird and appropriate end, huh? So was it supernatural or technical difficulties? Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, thanks very much, chaps, for coming on. Great discussion. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. Okay. Bye, Frank. Bye, Julian. Bye-bye, chaps. Take care, guys. (laughs) 